May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Pupa of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Preserving the legacy of Shinju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So uh, today we have a guest, Lee Klinger Lesser. Uh, and uh, Lee um, was a longtime uh student of and uh, assistant of Charlotte Silver, uh, uh, who, along with uh, her husband, uh, Charles Brooks, uh, taught sensory awareness. Um, Charlotte is is uh, one of the people, uh, well, well, she's like one of the founders of the human potential movement and that sensory awareness uh, movement. So, uh, Lee will have uh, plenty to say about that. She's also a co-founder, along with Chris uh, Fortin, of uh, Veterans Path, and you can check it out on veteranspath.org. And um, they were involved with something to do with firefighters at Tassajara, too. I can't remember exactly what. Anyway, like we're gonna learn about that, um, uh, and oh, Lee's experience at Zen Center, but uh, also it was really neat to hear what she had to say about her time with Harry Roberts, the uh, uh, Yurok shaman uh, who was uh, so close to us. Okay, so look, we'll get right into that after we've had our pause to meditate. So. If you're of such a mind, uh, hit pause when you hear the bell and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back and join us, hit unpause and we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation and we'll give Lee Clinger Lesser a call. Hello. Hello there. How are you doing? Hi, David. Hi. You're in Missoula. I am. What are you doing there? 
my daughter and two grandsons live here. And uh-huh. so Mark and I actually bought a house here so we can, we live just down the street from them. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, I'm having a, we still have our home in California, but um, our second grandson is just five weeks old. And I feel great being here. I don't really want to go anywhere else right now. Huh. That's really uh, interesting. Yeah, nice place, nice country. I've I've had a lot uh-huh. of friends <laughs> from there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my daughter and her husband have lived here for a few years now. Hmm. They, mm. they really like it. Yeah. Yeah, It's it was sort of the hip capital of that part of the country back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that kind of... It kind of still is. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, and beautiful, beautiful too. Yeah. So, uh, other than that, what are you up to? Well, I'm still leading sensory awareness workshops, and um, as Chris probably told you, that we led a retreat for wildland firefighters at Tassajara. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm also, I'm also working on a book. I, I'm really trying to find a way to uh, help people turn towards working to address the climate crisis and looking to see how I can link sensory awareness practice to waking up to what's so hard to face and look at the continuum of how we work with our own bodies and how we work with what's happening to the earth. So I'm, I'm working on writing that book. Oh, well, hurry up and get it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, so, um, well, what, what do you think about the climate crisis? I think uh, I, I think we're in really bad shape. I think it's I think we've done so much harm, and we're passing tipping points that aren't going to be you know, returnable, and we still have the, we still can make it reverse, you know, and stop the the, the harm we're doing. Um, to some extent, you know, the, the species that have been lost aren't going to come back, and the, um, you know, the the rising tides and the glaciers that are melting are not going to return. But we can certainly mitigate the harm that we're doing. Yeah. But I think it's. I'm just so struck by how how much denial there still is. And, you know, it's interesting that the combination of denial and then doom and gloom. So it's like either people are paralyzed because they don't want to see it or because it's hopeless and nobody's, so it's not worth doing anything. And that kind of all maintains the status quo. Huh. I've, I've always (laughs) felt like, uh, it doesn't matter how hopeless things are that it's just good practice to do what you can. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. What's hap- what's happening in Indonesia in terms of people's consciousness and what people are doing? Oh, um well there are of course people trying to uh increase awareness of climate change, but mm, it's really not it, people don't think about stuff like that here that I know, but it's a uh, <clears throat> pardon. <clears throat> It's a big country. I would say uh, mm-hmm. 
it would be uh, mm, pretty difficult to get people uh, a significant number of people here uh, to be aware of it. That, that you know, the hope would be the students, and there are students who care. But, you know, they feel like whatever Indonesia does, it won't matter anyway. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've tried to get, uh, you know, gone to poetry slams and tried to get, uh, the people, uh, at them, uh, aware of the climate crisis. And, you know, uh, it just is not, on their minds, they're thinking about uh, their sexual lives and their parents. Uh, it's mainly pretty young people, and uh, uh, you know, becoming a person and stuff like that. It's just, but um, uh, there are people who have young people working with them on on climate initiatives. I think. Uh, Artists and musicians uh, uh, are a little more uh, in tune than the, the poets I've seen, but I don't know. I have a very it just I just have my little tiny viewpoint, um, uh, and uh, yeah. So uh, in in the past, uh, when there were big changes here, it was uh, led by students. So. Um, uh, we'll see. You know, all they could do is try to be a good example because, you know, what really matters is the changes on a very large scale done by the United States and China and India and Russia. Uh, so, um, uh, I don't know. It's, um, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. There might be some some turning point. Do you you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, anyway, thanks for working on that uh, and uh, doing your bit. <laughs> um, so um, you. Um, I wanted to hear from you about several things. Uh, one mm -hmm. is your work with veterans, and the other mm -hmm. is your work with Charlotte, and mm -hmm. the, the other is uh, your uh, spiritual path, you know. So uh, uh, maybe um, why don't you tell me where you were born, and let's start there. <laughs> I was born in Manhattan. New York City. Ah, so was Katrinka, my wife. Huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. And and when was that? 1951. Uh-huh. And so uh what what's your uh what, what you know what what were the significant things that happened to you to uh, make you, uh, when did you start questioning or wondering what's happening or, uh, you know, questioning the reality that you were being taught or whatever? Well, you know, um, it's an interesting question because, um, 
this isn't this isn't exactly when I started question. This isn't when I started questioning, but it's something that's always struck me. Is you know, I was born six years after World War Two, right? And I, you know, and I'm <clears throat> Jewish. My family's Jewish. I know that I lost relatives in the Holocaust. My uncle, you know, my father was in the army, but my um, he wasn't he wasn't deployed. But one uncle was in the Marines and was in Iwo Jima. The other uncle helped to liberate a concentration camp, and all my life, nobody in my family talked about the Holocaust. And uh, I grew up in a predominantly Jewish community where obviously the, the adults settled together and gathered together um, to create a safe community for the fam- their families. And I grew up thinking that the majority of people in the world were Jewish. Uh, the public schools <laughs> were so- <laughs> That's great. I did. (laughs) But but what's interesting is that created a kind of safety for me and a confidence because I didn't know I was a minority. Um, You know, the public schools in my town were closed on Jewish holidays because because nobody would be there. You know, the the minority were Christians. And so it gave me a really different perspective of the world as I was growing up. Uh And, And it wasn't until I was, you know, recently even thinking about how could it be that my family never talked about the Holocaust and they didn't. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it was when I, I was at college and, um, didn't really know what I was doing there. I, and I had, I had always been taught, you know, get good grades so you can get into a good college. And so all through high school, I was getting good grades. Then I got to college and they said, you got to get good grades in order to get into graduate school. <laughs> and, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't, you know, it's like I wasn't there. I had no passion for studying. It was just kind of that's what was on the conveyor belt. You know, you went mm. from high school to college and did this. And my sis, my sister was a kind of, um, <laughs> she was the kind of the dark sheep in the family and the rebel in the family and kind of held that faith. And when she was 16, she took off and stowed away on a ship to Europe, and um, they, they found her and brought her back. And then a few weeks later, she took off and went hitchhiking across the country. And she was actually picked up right outside of New York City by um, a man who was a survivor of, of concentration camps. Wow! And he picked her up and took her. He picked her up and took her to his home in Ohio and called my parents and said, "Your daughter's safe." And my parents. Um, solution was to send me to go hitchhike with her. That's a good solution. You think so? I think it's a crazy solution. It is. um, It's great, though. Anyway, (laughs) it changed. I was 18, and my sister and I, and, and, you know, it's interesting, the man, it was this man and his two brothers all survived concentration camps. Mm. And, uh, they were extremely, he was incredibly gracious with us. And he had a business where um, he had truck drivers and he put us into one of these big, you know, big, huge trucks and said, you pass them on to another truck driver and, you, you know, truck stop. And uh, that worked until we got to New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and there we, anyway, we had to find a different ride and we eventually got into a truck and he, dropped us off in Delano, California, when Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, um, the United Farm Workers, were signing their very first contracts 
with the multimillionaire grape growers. Yeah. And um, so I, I stayed there. My sister kept on hitchhiking and she went up to Oregon, but I stayed and volunteered with the farm workers, United Farm Workers. Wow. And it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing, David. Um, it was, it was so moving to me uh, to see this group of people coming together and having such a impact by, you know, they've been doing this work for such a long time. And I happened to be there just when they had signed their first contract. And uh, I worked in the union hall and, uh, and at Friday night, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and other people would talk in the public square and people would gather and sing songs and eat tamales. And, um, and the farm workers that I met, also were incredibly inspiring to me. And at that time, I didn't speak Spanish. And they were all saying, you need to go to Mexico. You need to learn to speak Spanish. And But just all see, seeing the power of what they were doing together uh, was really profound for me. And also, when I left, go back to college, um, we got $5 a week as a you know, we we slept in the union hall, and they had some communal meals, and we got five dollars <laughs> in spending money. Hey, what what they, year was that? How old were you? I was, um, I was eighteen. Wow. No, I was nineteen. I was nineteen. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was nineteen. So I guess I was nineteen when I hitchhiked with my sister. Um, and and was she older? No, she was younger. So let me say Oh, right. You said she was 16 when she stowed away. Yeah, she was 16. Yeah, so I must have been, yes, I was 19. Wow. And um, David, when I was leaving, there was one woman, I'll never forget her, Linda Lizarraga. She was a a big woman, single mom of five kids. They'd housed her in a railroad car. And she and this Filipino man, you know, had been two of my friends and they gathered together. They raised $5 to send me off on the bus with $5 that everybody chipped in to give me. Oh, isn't that something? Yeah. It it still makes, it still makes me cry. You know, it's like, and the kind of the most valuable $5, you know? And, uh, so then, I, I didn't. I went back to college, but I didn't know what the heck I was doing there. And um, <laughs> I remember I, I had a philosophy class, and I did the research on some paper. And then I went to the philosophy teacher, and I said, "You know, I've done the research. I've lo- learned all I need to learn. I don't really want to write the paper." And <laughs> I've been a college instructor, and you know, I can't imagine how I would have responded if somebody came to me and said that, but. Uh, he was he was great. He said, "Well, what are you doing here at college?" And I said, "Well, I like tutoring people in the nearby neighborhood town, and I like riding bicycles and whatever." And he said, "Well, why are your parents paying three thousand dollars a year for you to tutor kids in the nearby town?" And so that question was a great question for me. And and then I went home for Thanksgiving break, and my mother, I, I was really trying to kind of. Uh, dis- disentangle and separate myself from my family and family dynamics and patterns and figure out who I was. 
And my mom came into my room and she handed me a brochure and she said, you should meet this woman. She can change your life. And then my mother turned and walked out the door. And the brochure was um, to take a workshop with this woman called Charlotte Selber uh-huh. in Mexico. <laughs> no kidding. In, in Mexico during the month when I had to do a, a one-month project off campus from college. Huh. So he looks like it was kind of kismet that, I mean, it, I, I had no idea what the, what the workshop was, but my mother had never spoken to me like that before, and she never did afterwards. And um, so I, I signed up for those two workshops, and I, I called up Charlotte to ask her if she knew of a family in Mexico that I could live with, because I thought if I went there, I'd much rather get to know the people and can stay in a hotel. Yeah. And uh, Charlotte, Charlotte thought that I was very, um, what was the word she used? Um, oh, I don't remember. There's some word, I don't, presumptuous or something. And I thought she was exceedingly unhelpful. But anyway, she gave me the name of the hotel. And I wrote to them in a very broken Spanish because I didn't speak Spanish. And these two women said I could stay at their home. And um, so I did. And I that's where I took my first workshops in sensory awareness. And I also felt so at home in Mexico that I dropped out of college and stayed there for six months. Where in Mexico? Um, in It was the, a town called Cihuatlan, Jalisco. It's on the West Coast, um, near Manzanillo, kind of a few hours south of Puerto Vallarta. Mm-hmm. And and so that that was kind of you know all of this was a kind of wake up for me that uh, being exposed to the United Farm Workers Union and being in Mexico in such a different culture and having the workshop where I felt uh, I had three I mean I don't know how much detail you want me to give you I mean yeah as much as you want well I had three profound experiences in my first sensory awareness workshop and that was it I was hooked. Um, the first one was, uh, you know, I, I was disconnected from my own body. I was so uncomfortable. I was, you know, I was 19 years old. I didn't, I, 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 I hadn't, I didn't feel comfortable in my body. I wasn't aware of uh, any kind of experiences. I wasn't paying any attention to my sensory experience. And I, uh, but so being in Mexico, I felt at home and actually felt connected in my body in a way I, I hadn't before. But in the workshop which I had no idea really what I was doing there and what was happening. But, um, you know, little by little, Charlotte was offering these experiences and guiding us to pay attention. And I remember sitting on a fence looking out at the ocean and just sitting there watching the waves. And all of a sudden, I actually experienced the movement of breath in my armpits. And... It was the first time I had any conscious experience of breath. And mm. as I sat there, I just felt like breathing breathed me. I wasn't doing it. And I'm seeing the ocean. And I just had such, cl- had such a clear feeling that I was as natural as the ocean. That I was, I was natural. Breath breathed me. Mm. And that was the first time I ever experienced anything like that. Mm. Well, please, yeah. it, uh, details... If that's an example of 
Uh, you don't know how many details I want you to get into. Just do the details. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So that, yeah, more that, details. That was, that was, well, that was one. And then the second one was, you know, we just, you know, these classes, it was like several hours in the morning and several hours in the afternoon. And you never knew what was going to happen. And we, she would guide us in having some kind of exploration. And then there would be a time of sharing. And mm-hmm. one day, I don't even remember what the exploration was, but a woman shared. Um, she, she said she felt like she was choked up in her throat, like she just felt all congested in her throat. And she said it with a lot of intensity and feeling. And Charlotte asked somebody to go and get a pitcher of water in a glass. And then she gave that to the woman and she told the woman to start pouring the water into the glass. And as the woman was pouring, as she got to the top, she started to stop. And Charlotte said, keep pouring. So she kept pouring and the water spilled all over the floor and she started weeping and weeping and weeping. Mm. And like really... Strongly, And then Charlotte looked at her and said, can you bow to it? And she said, you know, if this wasn't here, you wouldn't have to feel it. Now that you're feeling it, now something new can start. Mm. And that, that was also incredibly life-changing for me because the way I grew up, just like nobody talked about the Holocaust, my family, nobody talked about pain. If something was difficult or painful, it was like, stuff it, don't say anything, keep it on, you know, just just push it down. Mm-hmm. And here's Charlotte saying, bow to pain. And that was life-changing for me. Mm. It was, I, I uh, it was just such a different paradigm. Mm. Mm. And the third experience, so all three of these experiences have been kind of like, core that for the last, you know, uh, 53 years, I've been working with the same things. And um, the other one was one day Charlotte had us work with a partner and she told everybody to find a person and she wanted us to hold the person's foot. Well, that seemed like the most bizarre thing in the world to me. Like, why why in the world would I want to go hold some stranger's foot? It just, you know, I, I wasn't drawn to it at all. But I looked around and everybody was finding a partner. And so I found a partner and I'm sitting by this partner's foot. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm not just going to do it. I'm going to make sure I do a really good job. So I have this this story started going in my head. You know, so I'm holding this person's foot and it's like, don't worry, I'm here. I've got your foot. You know, I'm going to be really <laughs> super duper foot holder. I've got you. And the story is just spinning in my head. And Charlotte said, are you doing anything extra? And when she said that, I noticed that my shoulder was just about touching my ear. Like I was so busy doing a good job that my, you know, my shoulder was just high up and tight. And when I felt that, my shoulder came down by itself. And as my shoulder came down by itself, I realized that my arm was really tense and tight, you know, just doing all this extra effort to do a good job. And as I gave up the holding in my shoulder and in my arm, I came down to my hand on this person's foot and I realized I was squeezing this poor person's foot. 
And I didn't feel them at all. And when I gave up the squeezing, all of a sudden, I was actually really in contact with this other person. And I was present. And I felt the temperature of their foot. I felt the pulsing in their foot. I actually was feeling this other person. And all that time before, I was so busy with, you know, I'm going to do a good job and I'm super duper footholder and all this. Mm. Well, that was also just life changing for me. I realized how much of my life I was using extra effort. Mm. And in little ways, you know, all in little ways and big ways. Um, so those were those were three huge um, wake up calls for me and, and invitations for me that have um, stayed with me. And, you know, that's what hooked me. It was, and it was also because there was not, this wasn't philosophy and it wasn't theory and it, it was just completely accessible in the moment, the experiences. And it was my own experience that was guiding and teaching me. Um, so that led me to continue studying with Charlotte. And, uh, and also we, we, hit it off with each other, like we were really close and connected. And part of that also was that I didn't need her to be perfect. And I, I actually could see her imperfections. At first, they got they really pissed me off. I thought, how could you teach and teach this wonderful, uh, such deep presence and, and so such awareness, which was opening and expanding me, and then the more I got to know her and the more I spent time with her and with Charles, I would see them have these ridiculous, um, ridiculous, I, I would see them have these um, petty or intense arguments and, and like, well, she wasn't being aware and she wasn't living this awareness. And I was, I got really angry at her and, and I wrote her this really angry letter saying, how can you teach these things and then act this way? And um, I don't remember how she responded to me. But what um, eventually I realized that what she was teaching was completely authentic. It was something she understood and believed in and committed her life to. And she was, an, had, you know, she was a human being with the areas that she hadn't strengthened or developed. Yeah. And that it, but it, you know, what it gave me was realizing, oh, she's not perfect, which means I'm never going to be perfect, which means I can stop trying to be perfect. I can give that up as a goal. Ah. And, and then that gave me so much more freedom to be with Charlotte and for us to just love each other and be allies. And I didn't need her to be perfect, which, you know, of course, she wasn't and would never be. But that was really helpful for me to see that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I appreciate it. I like it. Yeah, that's helpful to me. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I got this. I got to study with Charlotte for thirty three years, um, mm. and uh, she's with me all the time. Mm. You know, she she died in two thousand three, but these teachings and her presence and her confidence in me too um, they just stay with me and, and help to um, continue teaching me mm. 
Well, so you were there six months at that time in Mexico. In Mexico, I was there for six months. The workshops with Charlotte were only, there were two 14-day workshops. Yeah. You know, and, then yeah. I, and then I dropped out of college. And then the other part of what was wake, woke me up also was I came back. I, I came back from, it's interesting, I came back from Mexico, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought that I wanted to have more life experience. But somebody suggested that I go back to Oberlin College, which is where I was in school, and, and see if they would give me credit or let oh. me take a, take a year to – I wanted to study psychology and theater. And I went and met with a dean, and for some reason, which I don't know, I think somehow I coincided with the vision he had for students because I met with him and told him what I wanted to do, and he said, okay, go do it. We'll give you a year's credit. And – I didn't have to. I didn't have to check in with them. I didn't have to meet their requirements. I mean, I, I, I had an amazing year. I, I volunteered in a women's prison. I volunteered in a psychiatric hospital. I volunteered at a runaway home for teenagers, and I participated in a gestalt group and took theater games and acting. And so I had an incredible year. Um, but they, they, and then I wrote like a 36 page paper and got recommendation letters from all the people I worked with. And they gave me a year's credit, uh, at college. Wow. And where, um, do, now, where is Oberlin? Ohio. Right. And, uh, where did you do these, these, uh, things that you got the credit for? New York. Uh, uh-huh. New York. I was, I was, I, I did that mostly in Manhattan. Uh-huh. So what year is that now? Well, that would have been 1972. Oh, goodness. 71 to, 71 to 72. Yeah. Hmm. And you, you were in Oberlin to begin with and uh, didn't know why you were there, right? Exactly. Yeah. But then you sort of figured out how to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. But, and you know, but I mean, but I had a very, I was only on, I, I graduated in 1973, so the regular time I would have graduated, but I was only on campus for two years out of the four. Because mm. I dropped out and spent six months in Mexico. And then I did this year long program that I developed myself. And mm. then Charlotte was going to lead a nine month study group starting in January of my senior year of college. And I realized I wanted to take that nine-month um, study group, which meant I would have left, wouldn't be there for my um, last semester of my senior year. So I took like 19 units of summer school classes, and then I took as, as many classes as I could in the fall. And um, they let me do a six six out six units worth of private reading to complete my degree. So I could leave and go do the study group with Charlotte. Mm. Mm. And I did. And then I thought I was going to go to graduate school uh, for social work, but I uh, I decided I wanted to work first. In the year that I was doing my program at home in New York, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Oh, goodness. When, so when I was... When I was 21, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Oh, gosh. And, or 20, 20 or 21. And, um, 
which was terrifying. <laughs> and um, I had surgery. I had my thyroid gland removed. Uh, but then they didn't do radiation or chemotherapy. Um, but I just, I've been taking, you know, a, a, a synthetic hormone ever since. But that was a huge wake up call. Mm. And that was part of my year at home doing the, you know, all the volunteer work and everything I did. So that, that was also something that just really made me wonder what was, you know, I realized that I was going to die and what was I doing here on this earth? And, and that was significant in me going to Zen Center. Um, but, you know, I also went to Zen Center to study with Charlotte. That's why I went originally to Green Gulch. Oh. Because Charlotte would be... I, I actually, in, actually in what year? College, in what year? 1978. 78? Wow, that's skipping mm-hmm. ahead quite a bit. Well, so I, I, I graduated from college, and I thought that I was going to go to graduate school in social work. But I decided that I wanted to work first. And also, when I had been in Mexico um, doing this nine-month study group with Charlotte, which was it, which was through the um, the spring and fall of 1973, I uh, met a Mexican man who had been actually had been a former bullfighter, and uh, we became lovers. And um, at, when I finished the study group, uh, we met in Houston, Texas. He came up from Mexico, and we lived together in Houston for a while. Hmm. And in Houston, in Houston, I I started working. I, I started working in a halfway house for teenagers. And first, I worked teaching English to Spanish-speaking adults. But then I was working as a half in a halfway house for teenagers. And after, uh, so that would have been from 73, or no, I probably, well, probably I started working at the halfway house, 74, something like that, I, probably 1974. And then I was trying to figure out, did I want to get a degree in social work? Did I want to be an obstetrician? Did I want to be a teacher? And after I'd been working with the teenagers for about three and a half years, I was, I think I was feeling like it was time for me to do something and feel what was going to be the career for my life. And I couldn't figure it out. Nothing was clear to me. So after trying for a year, I actually came, I I started visiting people important to me. And I went to visit Charlotte and she was in Mill Valley. She had gallbladder surgery. Hmm. Uh, so she, she was recovering from gallbladder surgery, and she and Charles were talking about this 16-week class that they were going to give at some place called Green Gulch Farm. And I heard them saying it, but it had nothing to do with me because I lived in Houston, Texas. So I was just hearing them. And for a year, I'd been trying to decide and figure out what was next in my life. And... uh Charles drove me to the airport. I was taking a red-eye flight back to Houston. And the moment I got on the plane, I sat down, and it became utterly clear to me I was going to take that 16-week workshop in this place called Green Gulch Farm. 
And if I did that, I was going to have to quit my job because they wouldn't give me a four-month leave of absence. And if I quit my job, I might as well leave Houston, Texas, because there was nothing keeping me there anymore. Mm. And I drove to work and gave, gave a month's notice. And Charlotte arranged for me to live at Green Gulch and be a Zen student, even though I had never heard of Zen. And I knew nothing about meditation. Mm. And that's how I got to Green Gulch. That's great. Boy, you sure couldn't do that now. <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, she she you know, she had her pull there and she and the and the workshop she was doing was only a weekend and then two nights a week for four months and it closed for the weekend. So it was really meant for people who lived in the area. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, I lived there and then, you know, one of my first jobs was to go help take care of Harry Roberts because he was recovering from his, his broken back. At Yvonne's home? At Yvonne's home, yeah. 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 And so Harry became an important teacher for me. And um, and I then I stayed at Zen Center for the next six and a half years. Um, and two things I'd, I'd like you to clarify here was you mentioned a person named Charles once. Could you tell us who Charles is? Yeah, Charles Brooks was Charlotte's second, third husband. And um, huh. <laughs> but no, Charles was her second. Her, Charles was her second husband. Right. Um, yeah, Charles. Charles was her second husband, and they they taught together. Um, they taught a lot of workshops together. Charles had met Charlotte in New York. And studied with her, and then they taught together. And what was the age difference there? Ooh, I, I, you know, Charlotte was older than Charles. Um, oh, a, a lot older than Charles. Right. I think, but I think I don't know, David. I don't know if it was fourteen years or more than that. I don't. I think maybe fourteen years. Like, uh huh. Something like that. Uh huh. And they were married, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you oh, already yeah. said that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I always thought of it as Charlotte and Charles until he died. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, what was the other thing I was going to ask you? Oh, Harry. Tell us about Harry. For, <laughs> you know, for one thing, how did he break his back? But uh, but the other thing, just just, uh, tell who Harry was. You know, I don't know how Harry broke his back, because when I met him, his back was already broken. Do you know how he broke his back? No, I don't. I don't. But um, you know who would know is Eric Larson, and I'm going to talk to him soon. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure Eric would. Yeah. I mean, Harry. So, again, I was a completely new Zen student. I had, you know, I was there to study with Charlotte. That's why I went to Zen Center. And I didn't, I really didn't know anything about Zen. I didn't go there for Zen. You know, I thought it was fine with me to do whatever the Zen stuff was because I wanted to study with Charlotte. And, uh, and I, and I, and I knew that I had to figure out what was next for me in my life. And I was tired of trying to figure it out and wait. And so I, you know, she said, live here and be a Zen student. That was fine. But, you know, so I'd be going into this the Zendo, the meditation hall, and there'd be all these bizarre rituals and incense <laughs> and bowing. And... Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, it had no meaning to me. I, I had no understanding of it. And, uh, and so I did it. And one of my jobs was to go down and take care of Harry. And Harry was a um, very crusty guy, very down to earth, very direct, kind of cantankerous. And it's funny, my father would re- my father would read the wind bell and none of it made sense to him. And then he saw this article that Harry had written and he wanted to meet Harry, which was um, uh, really pretty amazing, which I, they, I, I did arrange a meeting for them um, one time when my dad came out from New York. But um, I would go down and Harry had this big, you know, overnight he would pee a lot and his, have a big bucket of pee under his bed and then he'd want me to drive. My first, my first task of the day was to empty this big bucket of pee and, and then uh, sometimes drive Harry in his truck to wherever he wanted to go. Or we'd go for a kind of walk in the woods. And he was using crutches and we didn't go far. Mm. But um, he would always ask me, we'd pause and he'd say, okay, what do you see? <laughs> and I would describe what I saw. And then Harry would, Show me all the things I didn't see and all the interconnections of things that I wasn't seeing mm. at all and just how much detail. Mm. And one day, one day on one of our walks in the woods, Harry turned to me and said, um, so you want to know what this meditation stuff is all about? <laughs> I said, yes, because I didn't have any clue. He said, I'll tell you. He said, I'll tell you the first thing. But it's not the most important thing, but it's the first thing. You have to stop all the busyness in your head. The second thing, you have to find your song. The third thing, you have to sing it. And that's what meditation is all about. Oh, wow. Well, um, now, uh, what was Harry's tradition? Um, I mean... Where, where what did he where had he studied? Well, I mean Harry was a wild character, and he wasn't a meditation teacher. You know, Harry Harry was trained um, by his adopted uncle in in the Yurok Indian tradition, and so he was trained um, kind of to, at, in Yurok uh, wisdom. And you know, people say Harry was trained as a Yurok Indian shaman, or he was trained in just you know how to live a good life based on Yurok Indian wisdom and practice. Yeah, and and he was he was a green gulch as a consultant, you know, about the taking care of the environment. He was an agronomist and a horticulturalist, and and so he was recovering from his broken back at Ivan Rand's house, but he was also um, guiding green gulch to look at the the physical environment with the with the um, as intention to see the impact over 500 years. So, to, you know, Harry was helped to plant these windbreaks. Um, now there's huge trees all through the fields and just having a vision of how to take care of the land. Yeah. And then, you know, he, had men- he mentored a lot of Zen students uh, in many different things at Green Gulch because he had all this kind of, all kinds of knowledge. And Harry also had a, a formula for life which he would um, gruffly repeat to me over and over again. Um, and his formula for life was, what do you want? What do you have to do to get it? 
Are you willing to pay the price? And those were two real core uh, lessons that I got from Harry. Because, mm. mm. you know, I used to think if I could only find the right, you know, finding the right choice meant like I didn't have to pay a price. Somehow I had that that complete illusion. And somehow Harry's formula was just so simple but very clarifying and helpful. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's neat. And uh, it, it's interesting uh, also just to give a, a, a little window on uh, how Green Gulch was dealing with a, a new student there. It sounds like you didn't have any instruction of any kind. <laughs> no, you know, they, I had regular meditation instruction. So they told me, you know, the forms and, you know, to, what to focus on and how to focus on breath. But, but I, I, I mean, the, the forms and the Jap, you know, all the Japanese rituals, I didn't understand them. And, and they, it, I, it was just strange to me. And, Char, you know, Charlotte said, go live here. I, so I didn't any, I, I didn't research it. I had no idea what I was coming to, you know, or what it was all about. I had give, was given basic meditation instruction, but it didn't have meaning for me. And it didn't, you know, somehow Harry's definition of meditation, it, you know, just recognizing, okay, you, you learn how to stop the busyness in your head. You learn how to come to quiet, which was very aligned with sensing. But, you know, his, to, in order to find your song, in order to find, you know, who are you? What's your purpose? And how do you be of service? How do you share from this place of being authentic? I somehow that connection hadn't been there for me in any way because that wasn't explained. Um, it was just like, okay, folk, you know, calm your mind. Focus, here's your focus. Sit down in this posture. Focus on breath. And you can count your breath and you can sit in this way. And But the why or for what or just some living connection with it, I didn't have any understanding of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. Well, that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, actually, uh, I, I, I like it that, see, you, 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 you go to this spiritual community, right? And people aren't mm -hmm. pumping you full of things to believe in. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That's really unusual. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's it's sort of you were like it was up to you. Uh, mm -hmm. That's neat. I've, I've worried at times about too much instruction and codification of things, because there's always a tendency to do that, and also to create more ceremonies, uh, and, you know, I mean, that's sort of natural, but that's a very interesting picture of it, and that's uh, in 1978, you're saying? Mm hmm yeah. Um, 78. Uh, how long did you, were you involved with Harry, just that? period of time well harry died in 1981 yeah and i i went down yeah so i i mean i was i was connected to harry uh until i went down to tassahara yeah I, I went down to 
I went to Tassajara, um Actually, I was, it must have been a sense of five and a half years, not six and a half years. Um, yeah, I was at I was at Zen Center for five and a half years because um, I went down to Tassajara probably in the summer of 1980, and mm. then lived at Tassajara from 80 to 83. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, when you were seeing Harry, I guess you know I had a cabinet of aunts. And I used to huh. talk to Harry a lot. I, I fixed up. You remember that little that little shack in back, you know, close to the place next door, my uh, where Miami? Peter and Wendy live now, and uh, that I, it was a tack room, I think, originally for saddles and stuff. And I huh. I turned huh. it into a cabin, but that huh. you were gone when I was doing that. What I year guess. was that? Uh-huh. Well, uh, it was while Harry was still alive, but maybe I started it in '79 or something. But so you you went to Tassajara now. Um, uh, so you're there studying with Charlotte. You're you're doing this Zen stuff. You don't know what it's about, but you end up going to Tassajara. So something happened. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you know, I mean it. Something resonated for me, and it, it felt it, it, the form was so different than sensing. I mean, it, you know, it's like, but there was something very kindred, which was about waking up. You and, said you know, fencing. I, you, know, I, you said fencing. Sense, no, no, sensing. sensing oh, sensing. Oh, yeah. I wondered. <laughs> oh, so you're calling yeah. your work yeah. with Charlotte sensing? Yeah. So it was, you know, either we called it sensory awareness or we called it sensing. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. Go on. Um, so there was there was a whole kindred, the whole kinship. You know, it it it, it the, the 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 invitation to wake up. The forms are completely different, and um, the structure, but the the essence resonated for me. And I met, you know, I met my husband. I met Mark, who became my husband. I met Mark on my first day at Green Gulch. Um, oh. On, on top of a truckload of horse manure. <laughs> from- <laughs> That's so romantic. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was thrilled. Actually, Mark, Mark had just, he had just delivered this truck to Green Gulch filled with horse manure. He had shoveled it, they'd brought it from some stables up, up the highway and I had finished my job and was wandering through the fields and he asked if I needed a job and I said yes and so he told me to go get a pitchfork and I got a pitchfork and got up on this truck and I you know I was like wow I'm on a farm there's there's manure it's like you know I just felt awesome wow and it started kind of raining and he promptly left me there to finish unloading the truck and he went inside to do his paperwork um, well, horse manure, horse manure is fairly unoffensive, don't you think? Well, it just—it definitely has the smell of manure, but I—I I loved it. I was outside, and I felt like, wow, this is earthy. This is connected to the earth. I was, yeah, I was quite thrilled. Um, but you know, Mark and I, Mark and I started our our kind of romantic relationship a few months after I got to Green Gulch, mm. and. And we were married in 1981, 
Oh. Uh, um, so, I, you know, I think I stayed because it really spoke to me to be to be there, and the practice was speaking to me, and the community was speaking to me, and um, yeah, so there was something vital that was happening, and some kind of, I think, dropping in deeper to. Um, it's fun in a way the roots of sensory awareness because for me Charlotte was always my teacher like I never really had a teacher who was at Zen Center I learned from a lot of different people but nobody was a root teacher for me and Charlotte was always my root teacher all mm. through the years I was at Zen Center mm. and and sensing was always my core practice uh but it was like, so if I'm bowing to the altar, if I'm, you know, I used to love to bow at the altar to go to the bath or bow going into the bathroom. And I mean, bowing, but it's such an embodied experience and it's such a moment, living in the moment experience. And, you know, Zen practice was you know about being present in the moment and whatever mm-hmm. you're doing is being present. And so it, it, it was just all deepening for me. Hmm. Hmm. So, and and it's Tassahara. Go on. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you going to ask? I'm just Tassahara. So that was Tassahara. What happened there? Well, um, I mean, Tassahara has, has has so much power. Uh, just being there in that in that valley and uh, and dropping in and um, and in my time there, I. Uh, My my mother um, my mother became critically ill and I I uh, left Tassahara to go accompany my mom as she died and then I came back I was so I was gone for uh, about four months and then came back and um, and then I was pregnant to Tassahara so I, the year that I was pregnant I was grieving for my mother and I was becoming a mother and sitting meditation and feeling my son move in my womb for the first time uh, when I was sitting sazen and just sitting there and feeling like this little butterfly fluttering inside of me. And uh, so birth and death were so connected for me and just sitting meditation and grieving and and welcoming new life and hearing the creak and, uh, it was it was uh, very very uh, what do I want to say? Um, well, it was very primal, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think also the thing that I, the thing that I most learned at Tassahara with all the hours of meditation and just being there and not doing other things was that there's no place to run. And I really, that that became something that um, may, that I that I understood, and that I trusted, and that was my core lesson that I took from Tassahara, actually. Um, mm. And and my so my son, you know, my my first child, Jason, was born in in uh, April of 1983. He just turned 40 yesterday. And you know what? Oh. Today is Charlotte's birthday. Today is Charlotte's birthday, David. Oh, is that right? 
Is that right? Yeah, she was born. She was born on April fourth. Oh. Um, uh, but I ended up um, burying my mom's ashes at Tassahara. Mm. And the day before we were leaving Tassahara, we did this whole ritual up on the hillside where we buried her ashes and uh, covered trees with her beautiful colored scarves that she was very dramatic and she was an actress. And oh. So this, this tree this tree at Tassahara was covered with her silk scarves and the community helped me, Dan Howe, pull mm. the stone from the creek that I had chosen and somehow rigged it and got it up the hillside and... Um, you know, this was, this was, we were there in the year that Richard Baker left. And so there was a kind of gap in who was holding the space, who was making the rules. And, um, I guess he had told me that it was okay to bury my mom's ashes there. And, and then Mel helped work it out. And, um, but yeah, so we buried my mother's ashes at Tassahara. And then we, Mark and I actually walked out over the, 14 mile Tassahara Road with our baby in the snuggly as our um, goodbye to Tassahara when when we left. Um, but it was, an, I mean, it was an incredible gift to have the chance to live in this place of practice. And then for me to go back over these years and bring veterans there and also do the retreat for firefighters and just feel the power of you know, people's intention to, to understand how we create suffering and how we meet suffering and how we can wake up and what brings joy. And in the work with veterans, uh, one, one veteran said, you know, I've never cried so much and I've never laughed so much as we would do these retreats. Mm. And so there's something really powerful about the valley and, and the practice. And I think for me, it's been really helpful, actually. The, the formality of Zen practice has helped me in the sense of, I mean, the sensory awareness is always my core practice, but it's completely, there's always been this complete affinity and kinship with Zen practice. And I think, um, you know, just even the Han. And, and the, just the, this kind of forms and rituals that are used to help us wake up, uh, and the Han, you know, different wordings, but you know, whatever, awake, awake, um, birth and death are the, you know, important matters, you know, don't waste time. Mm-hmm. That's been very, very core for me. And working with people with so much trauma, um, uh, in in Tassahara, that's held by this kind of intention, was um, very profound. And my work with veterans, you know, because I, Chris and I started Veterans Path, and um, and it was, you know, it was, I, we spent kind of twelve years building the organization and um, and cultivating ways to to offer practice to veterans and it's been some clear some of the deepest most meaningful moving work I've ever done in my life mm-hmm. when did that start how did it start um, uh, what year did 
what year did we start? Um, well, I'll tell you how it started in the year I can figure out. Um, uh, we, when we were about to go and bomb Iraq, uh, the day before we were going to bomb Iraq, there were demonstrations all over the world. And I was marching in the streets of San Francisco, and my daughter was marching by my side. I was there and with was my son. <laughs> yeah. Were you? Oh, uh-huh. yeah. And so it was so reminiscent to me of, of the protests against the Vietnam War when I was a college student. You know, and when I was at Oberlin, I remember going in a U-Haul truck with the back open and a whole bunch of us students filled the truck and we went to protest in Washington, D.C. And uh, so here I was, you know, now I'm walking with my daughter. And so it's not my peers going to to war, but my children, because the next day is when, you know, we bombed Iraq. And I I was so... um, I was kind of distraught and troubled, and I thought, you know, I know I'm never going to stop us from going to war. And I just felt like, what is it that I can do? And I thought about what I would want for my own kids if they were coming back from war, and also thinking about all the suffering I'd seen with Vietnam veterans for decades and decades, and just, you know, how terribly they were treated when they came back, including, you know, I never, I would never spit on anybody, and I would never do something directly to someone, but in my mind and in my heart, I was vilifying them. And I remember a veteran getting on a, it was when I was coming back from, um, when I was coming back from the United Farm Workers this summer and I was taking a bus across the country, I remember, a, a, I don't know, even know what branch of military they were in, but a soldier came on the bus in a uniform and probably looks could kill. My looks would have killed this man. Because I just, I just had this um, uh, such a such a story that I was vilifying this person because at that time, you know, they were also showing, you know, all the horrendous things that happened in war, and they were showing the kids being killed and all of these terrible things that that they have since not done. They haven't been so graphic. I don't think ever since the Vietnam War when they showed things so graphically, and. You know, and I had this presumptuous notion, oh, I would never do something like this, which is I have no clue. You know, I, I have no clue what I would do. And it doesn't matter that I have a, you know, meditation and mindfulness practice of over 50 years. If I was in a war and seeing people by my side being killed, I had no idea how I would react and what I would do. Uh, but, you know, I had, I had that, um, hatred in me actually back then and then I so then I'm marching and thinking about all the suffering that happened to Vietnam veterans when they came back and also just how it's been one war after another and as and I just thought what is it that I actually can do if I can't stop us from going to war what can I do and it became it became real clear to me that um, what I if it was my kids coming back from war what I would wish for them and what I would wish for them is that they would have a safe place to gather with other people who had similar experiences, that they would be in a place that would be held by practice and held by people who were not afraid of pain, but also who weren't going to try and push anything 
out of them, but just could deeply hold space to be present for what was there and that they could have a practice that would sustain them. And, and then I thought, well, um, I can offer workshops in sensory awareness in case any veterans would want to participate. And I decided I was going to do that. I decided I would offer like four one-day sensory awareness workshops and, and see if anybody was interested. And I had no idea if it would be useful, but I felt like I didn't need anybody's permission to do it. I didn't need training to do it. I knew I could offer that. Uh, I, I needed to learn about veterans, but I knew I could do that too. Because um, actually, I, a whole piece of my life that I didn't mention was that I had become an early childhood educator, and I did that for years and years and was a college instructor and mm. and did a lot of a lot of work on um, diversity and equity issues. And, and um, what year were you doing diversity and equity? <laughs> oh, many, many, many years, David. Well, it was starting time, when? Starting when? Starting in. Um, I have to figure out all these things. So, started. I got my degree in early childhood education. My master's degree in. Um, uh, Probably nine, I forget nineteen eighty six something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, okay, some, something like that. And then always I was interested in diversity and equity issues. And so from then on, I was um, teaching and leading diverse, you know, studying and then leading diversity trainings. And um, I helped to develop the first three unit early childhood education course in the country on working with LGBT families. Um, and taught that in different different places, and um, so I, I had done a lot. You're of talking that. about knew, doing all that in in the, the late '80s, say. Well, I I worked in early childhood from from the late '80s all the way, and uh, I stopped doing it just recently. I've always been I've still consulted in early childhood. This is the first year I haven't done it actually. Mm. Um, mm. But, so even when I was doing Veterans Path, I was still doing some early childhood work. And so I, I, I led a lot of equity diversity trainings and, and developed this course and gave over like a hundred workshops in the Bay Area because the Bay Area um, was not welcoming for LGBT families in early childhood settings. And um, and then taught this. It wasn't. In, it wasn't. Mm-mm. Nope. Teachers, it's so interesting, and I, I would tend to bet it still isn't. Um, it, you know, we would give children's books that had included lesbian and gay families um, to, to teachers. I remember I did a presentation at a diversity class at a college, and we had a grant to give out books and to help teachers use books. And I was talking to them and doing, you know, showing videos and all this stuff. And then I gave everybody a children's book. And I said, thinking of this was just kind of like a throwaway question. How many of you, when you go back to your classrooms next week, are going to, you know, share this book with the children in your classrooms? And like three people raised their hand, <laughs> and I, I was so stunned. And I, and then I asked why, and people were afraid that parents would misinterpret it, that parents would be upset, that they wouldn't know how to explain this to children, and you know, and it's gotten more polarized. <laughs> even now um, than than it was. But, yeah, even in the Bay Area, teachers didn't know 
um, how to do this or, or weren't comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, so that's been a part of my life and a part of my work. Uh, I, I had gotten my master's degree in early childhood education. When Mark and I left Tassajara, we both went back to New York and I got my master's in education. He got his master's in business. Uh, so part of what I knew was how culturally incompetent I was about the military. You know, and I understood about cultural competency. Um, I knew that I had to learn about people's experience, but I, I knew that I could do that. And, um, and then I, you know, I mentioned to Chris that I wanted to do this and, um, Chris, Chris who? had been feeling Chris Fortin, who mm-hmm. was a good friend of mine. And we had lived together at Zen Center and, I told Chris that I was going to do this. I had just decided I was going to do it. And um, she had been feeling the same way. She had been wanting to offer meditation practice to veterans, also feeling so um, concerned and sad before mm. what happened to Kate when they came back. Um, so we decided we were going to do this together. And um, and then I was actually at Tassahara, uh for a no race event that would happen regularly every year and really at Tassajara when people would walk or run up the mountain. And I was walking up the road with Linda Galleon, who at that time was somehow um, in charge of, I forgot what her role was. She was in charge of, hmm. I don't remember. She wasn't president of Zen Center at that time, but uh I'm not sure what her role was, but I told her what Chris and I were wanting to do. And she said, well, um, Zen Center should support you. We should be your fiscal sponsor. Actually, before they became our fiscal sponsor, she said, we should support you. And then, so she arranged it for Zen Center to, to um, host our four events. And so we did two at City Center and two at uh, Green Gulch Farm. And Zen Center hosted them. Huh, that's really good. And, and what year was that? All right, let's see. Uh, probably 2007. Oh. 2007 or 2008. Oh, the first one was 2007. Oh, yeah, sure. Wow. Either 2007 or 2008, because Chris and I left um being part of the organization in a formal way in 2019. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 2007, 2007 was when we first started organizing this and talking to Zen Center and arranging it. And yeah, it was 2007 because it was 12 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and then, and then Zen Center eventually became our fiscal sponsor and helped and helped us raise money. And that's amazing. Um, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, and it, it and and then you know and then we did retreats at Tassajara for for the mm. veterans. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really good. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> um, have have you uh, um? Yeah, I'm very impressed with that uh, whole thing. Uh, so, have you pretty much come uh, full circle 
here from when we started off, uh, asked you what were you doing in Missoula? And uh, <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on? Well, I think, you know, I think that um, the work with veterans to me, some piece, there's so many pieces that were so important. And, you know, one of them was the power of community and being a witness and the power of being present and letting helping people come to be trusting in this connection with breath and in the present moment and being able to face things that are so incredibly painful and horrendous and being able to find the kind of inner spaciousness and room and the way of having compassion for each other that, that creates safety. And um, I have so many stories that have touched me in these experiences with veterans and seeing how they could connect and reconnect and find their own aliveness and and face into things that are so difficult. And I feel like what I learned also with the veterans and then also, you know, um, with the wildland firefighters who are also on such a cutting edge of service and suffering um, and how this, it feels to me also to tell um, vital it is that as a, as a as a world and as a community that we show up for the kind of suffering that's happening on the earth and uh, the harm that's being done and that we have to wake up to it and so I feel like that's been part of this I mean that's been part of the whole trajectory of my life is learning how to wake up and learning what we can trust that helps us be present to meet whatever's here mm-hmm. and. So, I, you know, I, I felt like I didn't want to be running an organization, and that's why I left in, in 2019, but also because I feel like I want to find some way to work directly around the climate crisis and how can we respond. Um, and, you know, and I have these two beautiful grandchildren, and I and my heart breaks a lot. Um, like, I, uh, my heart breaks with love. One of the things I said to the veterans, uh, we made dog tags, actually, um, on the, the veteran's path and was one of a colleague did this and she took a quote that I said at the end of a retreat after I had heard one dramatic story after another, so much pain. And I think one of the things I learned working at veteran's path, but it's also what I learned at Tassahara as a Zen student was that um, there's nothing my heart can't hold when open. And, um, I feel like that's really so important. And and I remember holding my grandson when he was a baby and sitting in the rocking chair and feeling him fall asleep in my arms. And there we were, you know, kind of breath to breath, belly to belly. And it was so beautiful. And then I started weeping. And, you know, I could weep right now just feeling like, these innocent kids and what they're going to face because of the choices we're making or not making. And I just feel like we have a responsibility to protect life. So that kind of brings me full circle, David. Yeah. Well, very impressive.
um, well, you've, uh, you've, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, looking back, it's interesting, uh, it, talking about, you know, you came from a family where, uh, a Jewish family in a Jewish neighborhood. Nobody mm-hmm. mentioned the Holocaust. I'm sure you heard about it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I did elsewhere. Yeah, I heard about it. My father took me to a Holocaust, um, like, it was like walking down halls with giant, horrible pictures when I was like six years old. Uh, wow. it was a whole demonstration of, it was just pictures. Uh, and, uh, Mm, he didn't say anything. He just let me see it and know what it was. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, th- that was, but you found out. Uh, but then being in college and not knowing really why you're there or what you're doing, but you figured it all out. You had a, a great trajectory, but you had help, too. Like, I love this thing mm-hmm. about your mother giving you mm-hmm. Now, your mother got it from her friend, right? The thing on Charlotte. No, my mother took a weekend workshop with Charlotte. Oh. And, and after, she, after she took that weekend workshop, she just knew that Charlotte could change my life. Oh, oh, I missed that. Oh, wow. That is so far out. And, huh, that is great. Um, and, you know, I ended up, my mother died when she was 59 years old. I had more time with Charlotte in my life than I did with my mother. Mm. Mm. Well, huh. And what did your father do? What did he do? Yeah. He, he was, he was a lawyer, but, but, um, he worked as an as a negotiator and administrator at CBS News. Oh goodness! And so he did he he did contracts and negotiations for people's contracts, and he also defended CBS against um, Nixon and Spiro Agnew when they sued CBS. And uh, yeah, he and he they my both my parents you know supported me to study with Charlotte and although they my dad couldn't understand it he had no idea what it was <laughs> and, and also um, but he but they both supported me oh, and that's my, you good. know my mom was the, my mom was the one who opened that door for me ah ah wow well and uh, I'm uh, I think we'll be uh, I look forward to seeing what other uh uh, you know how your path evolves from now because you and Mark are both uh, really active people, uh, and uh, you're in Missoula and you're out, you're in uh, Marin still too, right? Yeah, I mean Mark's there right now. And, yeah, uh, we'll see. You know, it's going to take a lot to get me away from my grandkids. Yeah, so, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, we'll see. Uh, I, I think if we're, if we're up to me, I'd probably just move here and stay. Um, Mark's not ready to do that. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Katrinka and I have a similar 
uh, uh, situation. Uh, she just really loves to be with uh, her son's uh, kids and uh, very close, and they talk so much. And uh, she sees she's seen my, you know my granddaughters too. I don't go back to America, um, but uh, uh, they come here, so that's enough. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, um, well, thanks a lot, Lee. That's really wonderful. I appreciate it. I appreciate you calling, David. And I have a question for you. What? What? How did you take in at six years old seeing the pictures of the Holocaust? Um, I just took it in. I just saw. I just saw that that uh, it it. It was just like it wasn't, and it was it was a memory uh, it, it, that was a, a very significant, prominent memory. But I don't associate it with any trauma or or anything like that. It was just I just took it in, and. Um, this is one of the things that can happen uh, here on Earth. This is this is one of the things that people uh, have done to each other. Um, mm. I don't really think I thought a lot. Basically, I just took it in. I certainly didn't forget mm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and David, thank you for all the ways that you hold the Zen Center history together and all you do for Crooked Cuke, and it's pretty wonderful how much you've collected for all of us. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> I want to talk to Mark, <laughs> too. Uh, mm-hmm. he'd pro- I'll get him. He's got a new book out. I want, why don't you uh, – I'll send him a message saying maybe you should uh, – I should get you on to talk about your book. He'd love to. And a lot more. He's got his own very different, very interesting path. Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, thanks a lot, David. Take yeah. good care. Yeah, you too. All right. All righty. So thanks a lot, Lee. Lee Klinger Lesser. Uh, that was great. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Um, what you've done and what you're doing. This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggett Bandita, guest Doggett Boomboo, visiting Sun Clay, lovely April, delightful. One-and-a-half-year-old Isla, dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.